Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 76, The Chaldean Oracles and Theurgy. Last episode covered the Chaldean Oracles in theory. Now we need to explore the Chaldean Oracles in practice. So let's get to it. We'll start with the term theurgy, theurgia in Greek, God-working or God-craft. Our title for this episode echoes that of Hans Levy's great study of the subject, the Chaldean Oracles and Theurgy in English, and Theurgia is indeed the main blanket term used by the later Platonists when referring to the practical art laid out in the Chaldean Oracles. But we don't actually find the term Theurgy in the surviving fragments of the Oracles themselves, although it may well have appeared there. We do find references to the theurgists, or the theurges. These are described in the one fragment where the term appears as an elite who are not subject to fate, unlike the rest of mankind who are known as the herd. We'll talk about escaping fate near the end of this episode when we get to the cosmic ascent that is central to theurgic practice. Anyway, from Porphyry onward, Porphyry being our first reference to the oracles in the 3rd century, it's clear that there is a practice called theurgy, and there is some argument about exactly what this practice entails. It's clear that the oracles are being used as the primary source material in this debate, in Porphyry, Iamblichus, and later in Proclus, Damascius, and many more. So it pretty much makes sense to talk about theurgy in the Chaldean oracles, whether or not the term actually occurs in the oracles. Theurgy has been defined in a number of very different ways, both in antiquity and in modern scholarship. The ancient definitions will appear in the course of the podcast, but we can mention here Iamblichus and Proclus's approach to theurgy as something like the necessary ritual component to the highest philosophical life. Iamblichus emphasizing that theurgy and goetea are two completely different practices. In other words, Iamblichus recognizes the existence of something we might translate as sorcery or black magic, but he argues vehemently that theurgic ritual has nothing whatsoever to do with it. And Proclus actually goes so far as to say that theurgy takes precedence over philosophy. Strong words from the great 5th century philosopher, to which we shall return. We can also note here the Pseudo-Dionysius' redefinition of theurgy as something pretty much equivalent to Christian liturgy. St. Augustine, on the other hand, coming from a different intellectual strand of Christendom, defines theurgy as something like sorcery. He equates magia, goetia, and theurgia, taking the position that all of these are the same thing and all equally bad. Then the very late Platonist Damascius, in his commentary on Plato's Phaedo, makes a distinction between two styles of philosophy. So he's looking back at late Platonism as a movement and divides it up into that practiced by Plotinus and Porphyry, which is philosophical, and that favored by Iamblichus, Syrianus, and Proclus, which is hieratic, that is, priestly. He is referring to their placing of ritual, i.e., theurgy, at the heart of their philosophic enterprise. And the debate goes on, more on the ancient theurgic controversy in the course of the podcast. As for the moderns, the more old-fashioned approach to theurgy, when scholars bothered with it at all in the old days, was to see it as a classic example of the late antique 
flight from reason or failure of nerve, an approach more or less intact in, for example, Dylan and Finnamore, who in their introduction to Iamblichus's De Anima call it, quote, really only magic with a philosophical underpinning, which works as a definition if and only if your definitions of magic and philosophy line up in a certain way that makes it work. But Sarah Isles Johnston takes things in a very different direction, defining theurgy as, quote, an esoteric revelatory religion that took as its authoritative basis the Chaldean oracles, dactylic hexameter poems that were divinely dictated to the sect's leaders in the mid-2nd century CE, end of quote. Now, we're not going to get into the religion versus magic debate here, but take a minute to notice how differently these two statements read. Really only magic implies something quite low-grade, while revelatory religion invites for a non-atheist audience at least, comparison on an equal footing with some other high-end world religions that we could name. At any rate, there are a number of ritual actions, ritual implements, and different types of outcomes of rituals mentioned in the oracles, and the first problem is deciding which of these, perhaps all, perhaps some, were to be taken as theurgy. The main concern of the oracles, the primary ritual achievement outlined in their verses, is Anagoge, ascent of the soul. Now, it doesn't seem like all the ritual practices discussed in the oracles are directly connected to Anagoge. The animation of statues, for example, or summoning and binding daimones in living human beings, although they may have been seen as steps toward Anagoge or otherwise related to it, maybe they were purifications that helped with Anagoge. If theurgy is the ritual practice devoted to securing Anagoge, which seems like a solid hypothesis based on the understanding of the Platonists who preached its efficacy, then based on the state of the evidence, I think it's impossible to draw up a solid model of theurgy in the oracles with complete certainty. Because some of the stuff we discuss in this episode may well be ritual practices that are not to be considered theurgic, as they don't have a direct connection to cosmic ascent. Scholars differ. Some talk of different branches of theurgy, under which all the Chaldean practices are to be subsumed, while others see basically ascent and immortalization as theurgy proper, with a bunch of other ritual practices also described in the oracles being, well, just other ritual practices. Who knows? With that caveat in place, let's get to the rituals and see what's going on. Preliminaries. Proclus tells us that, Quote, even the theurgist who conducts this initiation begins with purifications and sprinklings, end of quote. And then he quotes the oracles, quote, above all, let the priest himself who governs the works of fire be sprinkled with the icy billows of the sea, end of quote. So there is some sprinkling of water going on, presumably as a preliminary purification before getting into the real business. This is quite normal in religious ritual and in magical ritual. We also have the testimony of Marinus that Proclus used to bathe ritually in the sea. And Levy might be right, as against Majersic, in reading this fragment as a reference to ritual bathing rather than to sprinkling. Proclus also mentions in his fragmentary On the Hieratic Art According to the Greeks that sea bathing along with lustrations of sulfur, were prescribed, so fire may have been used in purification. Fire and water would have a nice balance to it, to be sure. So some sprinkling, 
some incense, who knows. There's some evidence that special clothing was worn for these rituals, and actually we would expect this, it was normal in a lot of other ritual contexts. And aside from these hints, we don't really have much to go on as to what was involved in preparing for a Chaldean ritual. On the other hand, there is a lot of talk in the oracles about purifying the soul and the noose, and I think it's safe to say that whatever ritual practices were involved, there was also an emphasis on mental disciplines and perhaps meditation practices of some kind, if only through contemplating the abstruse metaphysics of the oracles, which were, let us remember, verses so easy to memorize and suitable for chanting to oneself and mulling over. So the texts themselves may have had a role to play in the preparation of the soul for theurgic ascent, but we don't know. Invocations. Once the preparations were over, one could get on with making stuff happen. Now, as we've said, the primary Chaldean aim is to attain to immortalization through anagoge, ascent or elevation of the soul. But before we discuss that, there are a few other interesting things a Chaldean hierophant could do, which may or may not be part of the ascent ritual, as we mentioned. And whatever you were doing, seemingly, you needed a klesis. Klesis, or calling, is invocation. The oracles often recommend invocation, but interestingly, we do not get the invocations in the text itself as it survives. This means that, as I understand it, there was another corpus, perhaps oral, of sacred words and nomina barbara for use in the different Chaldean invocations. And this looks a lot like a body of esoteric knowledge alluded to by the oracles, but not provided. In other words, the actual invocations are probably esoteric, a fact which seems to have escaped much scholarly notice. It's very interesting. We get lots of reference to clasis, but we don't get a single bit of a Chaldean clasis in any of our sources. Comparing this with the situation in the Greek magical papyri, we get lots and lots of examples. So there's something different going on with the oracles. With the proviso that it is possible that there were clases in the oracles and they just haven't survived because of the fragmentary nature of the text. I don't think so, though. Anyway, we know that the invocations included nomina barbara because the oracles tell us so. Michael Pselos, the medieval East Roman monk and man of many parts, quotes Proclus, quoting the oracles, saying, quote, Do not change the nomina barbara, end of quote. Now, in case there are any listeners who are unfamiliar with this term, nomina barbara is a Latin term, obviously, used in the study of magic, translating the Greek term onomata barbara, the original which we've just seen in the oracles. It just means foreign names or words, something like that. This is a phenomenon very common in the magical traditions of antiquity right down to the present day, whereby words with no lexical meaning serve as instruments of ritual power. They're often attributed to a prestigious foreign language. For example, in the Greek magical papyri, we find lots of Hebrew and pseudo-Hebrew words and many other languages used. While in the Hebrew Sefer Harazim, we find garbled Greek words being used in a Hebrew context. So the nomina often actually do come, often in a mashed up form, from the alleged target language, though just as often they are either total gibberish, which we can't trace to any language at all, or they might be a tenth hand version of some words from a foreign language that have undergone centuries of Chinese whispers, so they've become something only vaguely 
recognizable as their original. So, we can say with some confidence that the rituals of the oracles were actuated through recitation of nomina barbara, words of power, with no meaning or no apparent meaning in Greek. The injunction not to change them is a reminder of the way in which they're thought to work, a theory of efficacy echoed by Iamblichus, as we shall see. The power lies in the shape and sound of the words themselves, and to alter them is to nullify that power. It has nothing to do with meaning to us. It might have to do with meaning to the gods, but it doesn't have to do with meaning to the ritual practitioner. You don't need to know what it means, you just need to say it right. We can conjecture that these incantations might also have included the vowel strings familiar from the Greek magical papyri and possibly other kinds of text as well. So we're dealing with wokes magikai, magic words, generally speaking, among which feature nomina barbara. But fortunately or unfortunately, these words of power have stayed esoteric, so we don't actually know what a Chaldean invocation sounded like. Now, the term klesis is found all over magical literature from our period, as well as in the oracles. It's standard terminology for what is done in rituals that summon gods or other entities. The kletor, the one doing the summoning, is also a stock figure found throughout the Greek magical papyri, but the oracles present us with a very interesting counterpoint to the caller, the kletor, the receiver, the dochus. And this guy really doesn't appear anywhere else in Greek literature outside the oracles and the tradition drawing on them. We have a kletor and a receiver, a dochus. Now, seemingly, this caller is summoning the gods, and the receiver is, well, receiving them. I think, this is conjectural now, that we are looking at something like either possession, intentional possession, the dochus speaks with the voice of the god, maybe, something like that, or perhaps some kind of mediumistic channeling of information. Or perhaps the dochus acts in a role analogous to that of a scryer, seeing visions once he has received the god. As we'll see in a moment, the oracles have a lot to tell us about the kinds of visions we shall see once the invocations are complete. And if these rites are to be read as the same as the rites referred to in terms of Kletor and Dochius, then it may be that the Dochius is receiving epiphanies. Perhaps the Dochius did a number of different things. This is all totally speculative beyond the fact that these figures, the, the caller and the receiver, were central players in some Chaldean rituals, at least. And the caller definitely performed incantations or invocations, and the Dochius, well, received something as a result. We also have references to binding and loosing of powers, and we're even told in fragment 141 that the Dochius can himself loose a summoned entity. So there's definitely a practice of calling up an entity, summoning them, having them stick around for a while, somehow in connection with the Dochius, and then sending them on their way when the rite is complete. Uh, lovers of ceremonial magical traditions will be in familiar territory here. Now, this reference to the Dochius doing the loosing would perhaps militate against a model of possession like something along the lines of, of Voudon ceremonies, someone mounted by Legba or Gede is in no position to send them away. Uh, the Loa needs to either send himself away or get sent away by someone else. But perhaps this is an incorrect inference. It's risky to speculate about what was going on here, but also hard to resist. 
Now we turn to stuff. One needs more than words to perform at least some of the rituals in the oracles. One needs a yunks. Fragment 206 orders us to, quote, operate with the Hecatean wheel, or the wheel of Hecate. Now this strophalos, wheel, is some kind of spinning item. So, Michael Psellos, you will recall from the last episode, described a thing called a yunx for us, a golden disc with a sapphire embedded in it and characters inscribed on it, which the practitioner spins around. Now, if this wheel of Hecate mentioned in the oracles is indeed the same thing as a yunx, and the fact that Proclus ended a drought in Attica by making it rain with a certain yunx, so clearly the yunx is some kind of magical implement, then we can say yunx equals wheel of Hecate, two names for the same thing, perhaps a distant relative of the yunx wheel of earlier Greek magical tradition. So for some, at least, of the rituals in the Chaldean oracles, you want to be spinning this yunx thing around or this wheel of Hecate around. And it's been speculated that maybe the sound that it makes is part of its efficacy. It could have made a really cool sound. We don't really know. Now, as we mentioned last time, the Yunges are also noetic entities of some sort. See fragments 76 and 77. And the physical Yunks, it has been conjectured, is presumably meant to summon them somehow, perhaps among other functions. But it's all very mysterious. Now, aside from one's trusty wheel of Hecate, maybe the same thing as a yunx, for ascent, one also needs two other things, synthemata and symbola. Since these are mentioned in the oracles specifically in the context of ascent, we'll talk about them in a minute when we get to that practice. Before we go there, though, it might be cool to discuss a few other possible ritual goals of Chaldean practice. Systasis. There is one fragment, number 208, where Marinus, the student and hagiographer of the very theurgic late Platonist Proclus, tells us that Proclus made use of the systases, the conjunctions of the Chaldeans. Actually, he made use of, quote, the conjunctions, prayers, and the divine ineffable magic wheels of the Chaldeans. So there are our wheels or yunges again. Now, what is a systasis? a term which doesn't appear anywhere in the surviving oracle fragments, but does appear in the Chaldean context in this testimony, and appears all over contemporary magical texts. In contemporary magical texts, Sustasis describes the conjunction of the practitioner with a daimon, often the paredros daimon, the assistant daimon, or one of many such. You can have lots of assistant daimones. Call it a familiar spirit if that seems more homey. And the daimon or daimones grant him extra powers for completing magical tasks. In some magical traditions recorded in the Greek magic book Pyrie and elsewhere, there's a whole genre of magic devoted to getting more magical powers so that you can then go on to do more powerful magic. So this is that sort of thing. There's some kind of linking up with the daimon so that the ritualist can get some of that daimon mojo. That's sustasis. Now, something like this may be the case in Proclus's practice. We can't really say, although we may get into this a bit more when we discuss the great Proclus. But we have another testimony to Sustasis in the oracular context, which is wonderful. Psellos tells us that Proclus 
tells us that Julian Pear, that's Julian the Chaldean, whom we mentioned last episode, conjoined the soul of his son, Julian the Theurge, with the soul of Plato and all the gods. Hence the idea that the oracles may have been a product, directly or indirectly, of Plato's own hand, either dictated or created or inspired or what have you by Plato himself from the afterlife. We are very far indeed from your introduction to philosophy class. Scrying and Epiphany. Fragments 145 to 149 have to do with seeing visions. In fragment 146, we learn that the visions are brought on by invocation. So there we have our ritual context. Whatever role these visions played in the larger ritual framework of the oracles, they're presented as things the practitioner, or perhaps onlooking participants, will see. This is stuff you can look forward to seeing if you do the rituals. It's been theorized that these visions were meant to be seen in flames. So everyone has had the experience of gazing into a campfire or into a fire and seeing shapes, right? And since other scrying type rituals use reflective surfaces or reflections in liquids or stones or other material media as a kind of focus for the forming of visions, the fire hypothesis seems pretty likely. Though the oracles speak obliquely about this, so you don't know for sure. However, even calling these visions a case of scrying is pure supposition. We are just told, you will see this. Whatever exact ritual circumstances are to be followed, it's clear that a number of very interesting visions can be expected by the practitioner. Some of them are kind of formless, shapes of light or fire, but others are very definite. For the first kind, we can look at fragment 145, cited by Proclus, quote, to perceive the shape of light which has been stretched forth. So this is a fragment of a sentence. So a shape of light. Uh, I leave it to listeners to imagine what form that might take. I can imagine anything from a classic 19th century spirit photograph image to a psychedelic luminous fractal explosion. A shape of light could be a whole lot of different stuff. The stretched forth part of this quote is probably a reference to the lights being a kind of lower extension of higher noetic powers reaching down into the cosmos in response to the ritualist's call. So it's a kind of reaching into our world of the supermundane world. And check out fragment 148, cited by Ipsellus, probably based on Proclus. But when you see the formless, most holy fire shining by leaps and bounds through the depths of the whole world, listen to the voice of the fire. Here, indeed, we might be looking at an auditory message following on the vision of the all-encompassing fire. Both of these visions, the shape of light and the fire with a voice, may well be different ways of describing the same thing, since fire and light in the oracles are pretty interchangeable, uh, as they were indeed in many ancient like physical theories and theories of vision and so on. Light is a type of fire, right? Or maybe not. Maybe they're two different things. The holy fire shining throughout the depths of the whole world really is an interesting image, especially when you remember that the noetic world in the oracles is a world of fire. If we turn to fragment 146 from Proclus's commentary on Plato's Republic, we get a much more detailed prediction as to what kinds of visions the practitioner will see, but the emphasis on fire remains. Proclus says, apropos of what he's been discussing, quote, 
And even the mystical doctrine handed down by the gods imparts these things, and then goes on to quote the oracles. After this invocation, it says, you will either see a fire, similar to a child, extended by bounds over the billow of air, or you will see a formless fire from which a voice is sent forth, or you will see a sumptuous light, reaching like a spiral around the field. But you may even see a horse, more dazzling than light, or even a child mounted on the nimble back of a horse, a child of fire, or covered with gold, or again a naked child, or even a child shooting a bow and standing on the back of a horse. End of quote. Levy sees all these fire visions as manifestations of Hecate. This may be the case, or it may not. There are, however, absolutely wondrous, and they're much better in the original Greek with its weird quasi-epic syntax. And note again in that quote, the, the fire with a voice, which I think is one of the coolest things from the oracles. Telestike, now animating statues. The art of animating statues, of actually placing a living soul or god or daimon within a statue, was a mainstay of Egyptian temple cult going way back. But it made its way into the Greek world at some undetermined point, never entering mainstream Hellenic temple cults as far as we know, but finding a home in the Chaldean oracles, the Hermetica, and other esoteric Platonistic religious nooks and crannies. As we saw last time, Julian the Theurge is said to have written books about this subject quite separately from the oracles themselves. We have several references to how Telestike worked. Cellus tells us that certain stones, herbs, and small animals, all called sumbola, a term to which we shall return in a moment, are to be placed inside a statue. Iamblichus tells us much the same thing. In fragment 224 of the oracles, Hecate herself tells us how to make a statue for her. She doesn't mention that the statue will be ensouled in our fragment, but the care given to materials seems to indicate that the intention is to create a fitting receptacle for the goddess or for some aspect of her power to manifest itself. Hear the words of Hecate, quote, But execute my statue, purifying it as I shall instruct you. Make a form from wild rue, and decorate it with small animals such as lizards which live around the house. Rub a mixture of myrrh, gum, and frankincense with these animals, and out in the clear air under the waxing moon, complete this yourself while offering the following prayer. End of quote. Again, we don't get the prayer. It's esoteric. Now, why would one want to animate a statue? Well, in the theurgic context, drawing down the presence of higher beings into the earthly realm seems to be a major concern. If we want to fill in the gaps using Iamblichus, the living statue would draw the god or goddess in question into the place where the statue was located, or draw the powers, the dunames of the god or goddess. We'll get more technical when we get to Iamblichus. Making epiphanies more likely, usually in the form of light. So, Strange and wonderful stuff would happen when an ensouled statue was around. And when a god appears, you can ask it questions, which is always a good thing. The presence of deities also has a purifying effect on the soul in various fragments and um, later testimonies. And so having them around is just a good idea, perhaps from a kind of purification perspective. And that brings us to Anagoge. Ascent. 
We finally have got to it. What is this all about? Well, listeners will recall that Plato, way back in the day, gave us some very interesting mythic or metaphorical or maybe literal, take your pick, accounts of the human soul ascending in search of wisdom. We have the winged souls in the Phaedrus, right? Going up to the world of forms. We have the allegory of the cave and the myth of Ur in the Republic, which both play with descent and ascent motifs and are both about a quest for wisdom and so on. Now, this stuff was canonical in Platonism and in the wider religious milieu, which we describe as middle Platonizing or middle Platonistic religion, which is where we place the oracles. When you add to this tropological inheritance, a literal reading of Timaeus's cosmology in Plato's Timaeus, so the universe is basically like the one Timaeus describes, you throw in a dash of Hellenistic astrological doctrine about the influence of the stars and planets and how they affect the world down here, notably through the generation of fate, and you end up with the Platonist ascent topos, which we've seen in Philo of Alexandria and Plutarch earlier in the podcast, and which we shall see again. The soul comes from the noose, or in the oracles, it comes from the Empyrean realm of noose, the fiery world. It descends through the cosmos, through the ethereal world, to the earth down here, where matter is dense, where evil daimones are all over the place, and where fate is pushing everything ineluctably. So, how would you escape from this situation? You'd go back up, back to the etheric realm, and then onwards to the Empyrean. But you can't go up because of your body, which lacks wings. So, your soul needs to leave the body behind. How do you do this? Through purifying her from the attachments to the physical world and to the body, and if you are a Chaldean, this is done primarily through ritual. The Theurge draws down the powers of the gods into this world, the mundane world, so as to enable the soul to go up to their world. Now, the term anagoge does not appear as such in the oracles, although we find the cognate word anagogos in fragment 190. In Yamlukus and Proclus, however, it is very clear that ascent is what this theurgy business is all about, and lots of the fragments of the oracles are clearly dealing with the ascent of the soul and her immortalization. And as we shall see in Plotinus, anagoge is also a very, very important uh, philosophical practice, but its relationship with theurgy is much more problematic. Now, how does this ascent work, and why does the soul need to become immortalized since the platonic soul is already immortal? So, first of all, how does it work? Well, do you remember the Ion? The Ion was a god associated with time somehow, associated with the heavens, and it has been conjectured that the Ion may be identified with the noetic sun. If you imagine that everything in our world has an archetype in the noetic world, this is the archetype of the sun, a mighty god, an immaterial sun lying behind the physical sun that we see, and adumbrated in Plato's Republic. The noetic sun seems to be the goal of the theurgic ascent, and the theurge actually uses the rays of the physical sun as, quote, material connectors to rise up and approach the sun. Presumably a second stage then follows. So you, you first approach the physical sun, and then presumably a second stage follows from the etheric sun to the noetic sun, the true sun. 
along the rays of the sun, which are probably the material connectors. Now, whatever the relationship of the other rites we have discussed so far to this primary act of ascension, we assume that the soul has been prepared in a number of ways, possibly by consorting with the gods to leave the body behind. At this stage, the theurge must breathe. Michael Sellis cites this line from the oracles. Those who, by inhaling, drive out the soul are free. So, this is very cryptic on its own, though I think it's clear that some kind of breath control practice is surely meant here. But we have a fascinating bit of comparative data here. The so-called Mitras Liturgie, a long text collected among the Greek magical papyri, it's PGM 4, 475 and following. This Mitras Liturgy tells the practitioner, who is also looking to ascend through the cosmos, just like the Chaldean practitioner is, to inhale the rays of the sun and use them to rise up. So if we put together all the hints from the oracles, the rays acting as material connectors to the higher powers, and the inhaling, driving out the soul from the body and freeing it, these look like very cognate practices which we can probably use comparatively to flesh each other out. But it's always a dangerous thing to do. What exactly breathing in the rays of the sun means is an open question, and I leave that to our listeners. Do try this at home and tell us how it goes. But what about this freedom business? What is the soul being freed from by this inhaling? Well, the body obviously is one of the things you're being freed from, but also from fate. Remember the reference we cited right at the beginning of the episode to the theurges being the ones who are free from fate, unlike the herd? So you need to get out of the body and you need to get out of the reach of the moon. You need to get out of the sublunary realm because fate only operates beneath the moon. This is a kind of post-Hellenistic common idea found across many realms of thought from philosophy to astronomy, astrology, to Platonistic religious currents like the Chaldean oracles. So you need to free yourself from fate and you do that by ascending. But it's not as simple as doing some kind of pranayama practice. You don't just breathe, the ascender also needs sumbala and sunthemata. So what are these? Now, let's start with the sumbala symbols. Listeners who remember episode 26, where we spoke with Peter Strzok about the evolution of the term sumbalon via the Pythagorean tradition into a hermeneutic term, meaning something like esoteric utterance or piece of written esotericism, can now add another meaning to this term to their list. A symbolon in the oracles is a token of the gods' immaterial realities present here in the material world. In the Platonistic universe of the oracles, and remember the Stoic doctrine of sympathia, universal sympathy, whereby different parts of the universe kind of respond and are linked to one another through occult connections, this has long been absorbed into Middle Platonism as a standard physical law. We find it in Philo, we find it in other earlier authors, we're going to find it in Plotinus, we're going to find it right the way through. Certain materials, stones, herbs, and so forth, have connections with divine powers. Quote, For the paternal intellect has sown symbols throughout the cosmos, the intellect which thinks the intelligibles, and they are called inexpressible beauties. Now, some scholars want to make the symbola into words of power. And this might be the case, but 
This quote we've just read seems to me to indicate something more like physical talismans exploiting the occult properties and sympathies of certain materials. Basically what would later be come to be called natural magic, and the same thing in the earlier quote from Celis where he talked about animating statues using symbola, which were herbs and small animals and stuff like that. We don't have the details here, but filling in the gaps from the so-called magical tradition and from what Iamblichus later talks about, we are talking about the occult virtues of plants, stones, and so forth being used to harness divine power. We're also probably talking about amulets fashioned from these already powerful materials and made even more powerful. And of course, the symbola could also have added ritual charge from Wokes Magikai being added to them in the form of inscriptions or what have you. So my take on the symbola anyway is that they are amulets of some kind or objects of power made from specific materials which have the imprint of the gods on them, even though they're material. And I think this is what is meant when the Suda tells us, as we saw last episode, that one of the Julians was skilled in Telesiurgica. These, I think, are symbola, perhaps in sold statues or perhaps amulets of some kind. Just a conjecture, but I think it fits better than ideas about this, this term just referring to certain Wokes Magikai. Now, the other thing you need for the ascent is the Sundema. Check out this fragment. Quote, Arrayed from head to toe with a clamorous light, armed in mind and soul with a triple barbed strength, you must cast into your imagination the entire Sundema of the triad, and not go toward the Empyrean channels in a scattered way, but with concentration. Now, this would seem to be something much more mental. Perhaps these Sundhimata are indeed Wokes Magikai. Perhaps even envisioned as passwords allowing access to successive levels of the cosmos, something we see in other texts, but not explicitly in the oracles. But the entire Sundhima of the triad would seem to me to be something more like a mental image or mental construct which is to be held in the mind. Whatever it is, it helps you to focus as you approach the Empyrean channels, the ways toward or through the noetic realm. Tell me I'm wrong when I say that there was some kind of powerful, active visualization practice going on here. That's what this quote seems to say to me. In fragment 109, we hear, but the paternal intellect does not receive the will of the soul until the soul emerges from forgetfulness and speaks a word, remembering the pure paternal synthema. Again, the emphasis on focus emerging from forgetfulness. And maybe a bit more of a password-like character to the synthema in this quote. It's something you must remember and say to the paternal noose so that he will receive your soul's will. Presumably, your soul's will is something like, please grant me assent. So the synthema in the oracles is a really fascinating idea, and one which even one more fragment might give us a better idea about, damn it. But that's what we have, those two fragments. For my money, there are litanies, or perhaps images or diagrams, which have to be memorized by the ascent practitioner and which are to be deployed at certain steps of the ascent through the complex and densely populated Chaldean cosmos. And these are the Synthemata. And I'm betting on the Symbola being material objects held in the hand of the ritualist, which through their inbuilt power are also present with the soul as she rises on the rays of the sun, or maybe they give her extra strength like booster rockets to do so from down below. 
all speculative, and I encourage listeners to check out the oracles and the secondary literature and the bibliography to this episode and look at the other theories out there. Maybe try it out yourself and make up your own minds. Now, apathanatismos, immortalization of the soul. Proclus tells us in his commentary on the Republic that there is a theurgic art of immortalizing the soul. Porphyry, earlier on, in his On the Return of the Soul, as cited by St. Augustine, denies that this is possible. Theurgic purifications cannot make the soul immortal. So what is going on here? Well, it's time to introduce a major concern of later esoteric Platonism, the immortalization of the soul, or rather, of the lower soul, or of the vehicle of the soul, or of the soul's pneuma, or astral body, or... Well, we'll get into the specifics as we approach individual thinkers. But, since the oracles don't tell us what they mean on this point, we need to use Numenius, Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus, Proclus, and other later theorists to get a handle on what is being envisioned here. Late antique Platonist man, it seems, had several souls, or several iterations of soul, depending on the thinker. We are told by Porphyry that Numenius, the thinker, remember, who's closest to the oracles in his cosmology and anthropology, Numenius held not the usual position that the soul has three internal divisions or powers, as in Plato's Republic, or even that it had two, irrational and irrational, which is another kind of division that pops up a lot in Platonism, but rather that everyone has two separate souls, the rational and the irrational soul. Now, no surviving late Platonist agrees with Numenius on this in principle, but in practice or in structure of thought, they all think that when the soul comes into contact with the body, some extra entity or entities are created or arise, which although they're not material like the body, are somehow kind of more material than the higher soul. And this lower soul or vehicle of the soul, there's lots of names for this kind of thing, this will disperse upon the death of the body. Thus, when you die, some part at least of who you are now is also really going to die as well. You won't just be yourself without a body going, ooh, I wonder where I'm going to reincarnate. You will be a stripped down, more divine, pure soul. And there's lots of questions in later Platonism about whether you're going to remember your life, whether you're going to have an individual character, or are you just going to be reabsorbed into the hypostasis of soul? So, this lower mediating entity in Plotinus takes the form of the lower soul, which is interestingly the same thing as the entelechy of soul and body outlined by Aristotle. So you can have an immortal, separable soul and an Aristotelian entelechy theory in the same thought world. Nice one, Plotinus. Something similar is found in Porphyry, but in the more theurgic Platonists like Iamblichus and Proclus, things get more complicated as they also have a very developed theory of a quasi-materialized entity, the soul vehicle or pneumatic body, which is kind of like the glue between the soul and matter, which allows a body to form. Because obviously a fully material entity like soul is not able really to come in contact with matter without some kind of mediating entity. So someone stop me here. We're already running along in this episode, and the doctrines of the lower soul and the ochim pneuma and all that kind of stuff is very, very interesting, and it's going to be very important in the development of Western esotericism going forward. But the point for now has hopefully been made. We have a soul, which is, of course, already immortal, and it doesn't need anyone's help. But then we have a lower aspect of soul, 
And if the oracles really do follow Numenius here, or vice versa, in other words, if there's a kind of Numenian doctrine of soul in the oracles, then this really is a separate extra soul, and it's dangerously close to the body and the material world. It's thus in need of immortalization. This lower soul, then, is what needs to be immortalized, and this occurs when it's removed from fate, which would lead to its inevitable death, and put into contact with the noetic realities. So it thus attains to the same high level as the higher soul. You're sort of bringing your lower aspect into harmony with your higher aspect, and thus the whole of you becomes immortal. If this interpretation is all correct, then the oracles really do promise a special fate in the afterlife to their initiates, and so they actually kind of are a latter-day mystery initiation, which is very interesting. In this episode, we have probably spent too much time on the less central ritual stuff and not enough time on the big stuff, namely ascent and immortalization. But we shall return to the latter in the course of the podcast, and it wouldn't do to skip over the other wonderful material. Now, we saw the oracles and theurgy have been considered to be just magic with a philosophical veneer applied. Let's return to this idea for a moment, although we don't think it's a helpful way of looking at things. Why is everyone on about magic all the time in the context of theurgy? Surely we're dealing with religious ritual, not magic, right? Well, first of all, death to the magic-religion dichotomy, which is fake as hell. But secondly, we have a very influential and very important modern document formed of hundreds of ancient documents. This is the Greek magical papyri which we have been name-dropping throughout this and many earlier episodes. There is lots of stuff in the PGM which reminds us of the oracles, or vice versa, from terminology like klesis, systesis, and so on, to paraphernalia, talismans and wokis magikai, and even to breathing in the rays of the sun in order to ascend to the noetic reality. So now might be a good time to have a look at these PGM of which we speak so highly. So let's do it. Join us next time for a fascinating interview with Korshi Dosu, papyrologist extraordinaire, about the Greek magical papyri, our single greatest body of antique evidence for that stuff they call magic. After that, we'll move on to the great Numenius of Apamea, a truly esoteric Platonist. Or is that Pythagorean? Find out then, and in the meantime, be like the Nomina Barbara of the Chaldean Oracles, and stay stubbornly esoteric despite the best efforts of generations of scholars. 